Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Jazz Scene, giving you an in-depth look at the music and stories of the musicians performing on our stages here in Columbus. All right, we are here with Columbus Jazz Orchestra Artistic Director Byron Stripling as the CJO gets ready to open its 43rd season with a concert titled Redefining Tradition, Ellington, Basie, and Beyond. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And so this concert, Ellington, Basie, and Beyond, kind of sounds like it mixes a little bit of what came before in the, in the, in the cornerstones of the music and, and looks ahead into the future. So why don't you uh, explain for us kind of what, what this concert is going to try to do to kick off the season. So the, the title, of course, as you mentioned, was Redefining Traditions, uh, Ellington, Basie, and Beyond. And I sort of look at the foundation of big band jazz as being Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Of course, Count Basie's big thing he used to always say, if people say, you know, can you define your music? And he used to say, pat your foot. And it's those three, those three words that sort of defined, for me, the, the beauty, the glory, the majesty of what Count Basie was all about. And I have so many memories of seeing that band live, whether it was Jimmy Forrest playing tenor, um, Al Gray playing trombone, and really the only trombone player I've ever seen that could light up an audience, mm. uh, seeing Sonny Cohen and, and on all these guys playing trumpet. And, of course, I used to see the band. You know, it used to cost $5 for me to see them at <laughs> That's the Prom Ballroom in St. Paul, Minnesota. They always come came through. It was an intermediate stop between Chicago and Milwaukee and places like there. So right. I could see them midweek, and they came at least two, three times times a year five bucks four hour dance mm. the best way to experience music and and people should know experiencing it live is amazing there's a different thing that happens when you see a big band in that context so that pat your foot philosophy and that fact that i always saw people almost you could see their physiology change as soon as the band began playing and everybody in the room was patting their feet then there's the bassy piece which is so important to to that uh, and having gotten a chance to see Count Basie's band uh, and see Cootie Williams, who would sort of swagger to the front with his plunger mute and with no mic fill up a whole hall to watch Paul Gonzalez ignite the audience with his saxophone. Um, I never got to see Johnny Hodges with the band. It was in the 70s. Right. Uh, but by that time, I saw Johnny Coles, who I later played with. He was playing trumpet with the band. So these are, you know, pivotal experiences in my life, along with hearing the great records. But there's a common sort of red thread through this whole concert. And what, and that really is that there's one person, and there's probably maybe one or two more, but there's one person that played with Count Basie and played with Duke Ellington, and his name was Clark Terry. And upon his death last year, at the age of 93 years old, uh, everybody in the jazz community was, was just uh, really, we were so upset at his death because he meant so much to so many people. Uh, you should know that the Columbus Jazz Orchestra had him as one of their first guests. And Ray Eubanks, right. was, uh, he said, hey, we got to get Clark Terry right, right. away. Um, so you, you've got a guy that played with both Basie and Ellington. And so I said, well, why don't we put that together? And then the red thread will be sort of Clark Terry because let's do a special tribute to him. So we got three amazing uh, composers to compose music, uh, John Clayton, Dennis McCrell, and Chad Eby. And they wrote a suite we call the Clark Terry Suite. And this is in tribute to uh, the greatness of this man who really changed the face of jazz through his, his trumpet play. I mean, I can talk more about that if you want, but that's no. essentially the... the Concert. Right, and so Clark Terry, as you said, being a uh, member of the Count Basie Orchestra, a mem member of the Duke Ellington or Orchestra, really kind of threaded through the whole music, really, and, and as a solo or as a leader in small group recordings, and, and, and he was, in addition to being a great performer, he was really 
from what I've read and, and, and would consider one of the preeminent jazz educators in a formalized sense, meaning he took the time to really cultivate young people through the music. Um, and that became, and I, and I read a quote recently where he said, basically, he realized at a certain point after he had thought all these years, I'm a trumpet player, I'm a trumpet player, I'm a trumpet player. He, he all of a sudden dawned on him that he's an educator mm. and that that was no longer, he was known for the horn. He was known for what he was going to give to students. Mm. So, and, and I know you have sort of a personal connection to that because you were in his first youth orchestra. Is that right? Or one of his, probably early, one of his first yeah. ones. Yeah. So yeah. kind of talk about how Clark Terry, the, the, the human, the person, first of all, and then through the education and the mentoring kind of, uh, has has been such an important part of this music. Yeah, I mean, I think first it's important for people to realize that you have one of the greatest jazz musicians uh, ever in Clark Terry. Um, you know, you, he had a, a flugelhorn sound that was like you listened to, and it was like a, a nice piece of, of dark chocolate melting mm. in your in your mouth. It was just so gorgeous and so beautiful. Uh, it was like velvet, uh, kind of what I think of as when I hear Sarah Vaughan. It was that kind of tone quality, and the flugelhorn was his choice to play he was one of the people that pioneered the, uh, using it before that it was a more like a novelty right um, and duke ellington encouraged him to use it too so there's that another duke ellington tie he by the way he called his time w with ellington he's like i was in the university of ellingtonia he always <laughs> said and because that's the education he got from watching duke right. uh, and and you know so many great leadership lessons from watching Ellington, who had guys who really had, in some cases, maybe habits that were, you know, not the kind of habits you'd like to have. But how do you manage that? Right. And how do you get the best out of those people? One of the things that Duke did is he really wrote for the individuals. In fact, at one point he gave um, Sam Woodyard a drum part. He said, Sam, play this drum part. And he, he, Sam read what was there, and then Duke took it and he tore it up. And he goes, now you play your thing. And so he played it, and he goes, now see, Sam, you do it so much better when you do it your way. Right. But this is a, a philosophy, a way of, of teaching or leadership that you learn from Ellington, mm -hmm. that he, he had that. He knew how to get the best out of people. Clark Terry was nervous in playing a, a, a tribute to Buddy Bolden that um, Duke Ellington had written. And Clark went up to him and says, you know, Duke, nobody ever really heard Buddy Bolden play. There's no recordings or anything. And uh, he says, oh, Buddy Bolden, he played a beautiful sound. He played a lot of diminishes. You, you, that's your thing, man. You know how to do that. And, <laughs> you know, when a leader tells you that and the guy you admire, you go, oh, maybe I can do that. Puts you at ease a little bit. Right. right. So those are those leadership lessons. But but here's the big thing to, to, to get to your point about Clark Terry. Um, Here's a guy that would be playing with Oscar Peterson one night, and of course the pivotal record, Oscar Peterson Trio Plus One, which everybody right. should have. Mm -hmm. So he, he's playing and touring with Oscar Peterson in every big name jazz uh, person you can think of, uh, starting a, a career playing solos in the Tonight Show band, blew everybody away. And, and this is a guy that never had to step into education, but one reason he did was because when he was a kid and he used to ask guys, hey, how do I do this, how to do that? They would give him stupid answers because they didn't want uh, the competition from him. Right. And he's like, I never want that to happen. But once you become a really great at anything, I, this is my thought, is you immediately, when you get to a certain level, talk about, think about how am I going to get and share this with everybody? Right. S there's almost a responsibility. I think on, on any level, whether you're a businessman so the mentorship is not even something that's a question for you. It's like, how am I going to do this? So for Clark Terry, that was the motivation. But um, Zach, it goes even beyond that. Because 
one night he's playing with Oscar Peterson, and when everybody else is going back home to where they live and, you know, drinking, smoking cigars and drinking cognac and, and watching a little bit of TV, Clark's off to the local high school. Right, right. And he's going to play with, and it's not, not always because he wants to make more money. It's really the desire to educate. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does it feel like? For a kid to play with a guy that I just, all those guys I just mentioned, and you know, having played with Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Oscar Peterson and on and on, do you know what that feels like to stand on stage with Clark Terry? Well, I'll tell you, because I did it. It's something that you never forget. And so when you're 70 years old, you look at people and you go, I played with Clark Terry. And your love of jazz grows. And to stand on stage and actually hear that sound come at you and hear those notes and and watch and observe him play, it changes your life. Okay, so that's one piece of it. Here's the final piece I'll say about that. You might have lived in Iowa or Idaho or Alabama. And your interaction with black people might have been very limited. Right. But when Clark Terry came to play with your high school, he would change your life because you fell in love with him. Because Clark Terry, that little boy from St. Louis, would spend all his time not only helping the kids during the day, playing for them, playing with them, is that after the concert, there would be a line, and this is, this is the God's honest truth, always a line of at least an hour long, and he would sign every autograph, and the, the reason he was signing autograph, autographs is that everybody fell in love with him. Right. Okay. So you're signing autographs to everybody. The parents are coming up. The, he's hugging every kid. He gives everybody a nickname. <laughs> you know, one of the things that John Clayton did when he uh, wrote The Last Movement, he says, what was Clark's nickname for you? He knew because Clark had a nickname for everybody. I said, well, it was B-Ron, he always called me. So that's the, the title of John's uh, piece of the suite for me. Um, so you're signing everybody's autographs, and, and there's this rapport, and you're sitting there, you're hugging a black man who maybe a day before you probably would have crossed the street had you seen him. Right, right. So for race relations, the best way to do that is through music. Mm. If, if violence never does anything and forcing people to, this was something that was not forced. It was music that changed lives. And Clark Terry throughout the world did that. And that's his legacy. And it's cool, Zach, because he is probably the greatest Trump player. Dizzy Gillespie told Clark Terry's wife, he says, do you know who you married? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I know. He says, well, let me tell you. I know you think you know. You married the greatest Trump player in the world. That's Dizzy Gillespie talking to Clark's, right? right? So, but... Zach, it goes beyond that because the way he affected people's lives through education, that's why education is so important. Right. Well, and, and it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't that he was in a structured academic. I was right. the professor of music, at, right. even though he held positions at mm-hmm. various times. And as you see in his documentary, Keep On Keeping On, he takes this blind student, uh, Justin Coughlin, and... Justin uh, will be at his house until 3 a.m. Clark's in bed. Yeah. You know, at this point, he's his body is failing from yeah. diabetes and other things, and and until three in the morning, they're listening to tunes and they're they're he's singing to him and having him play by ear, and it was this organic communication. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be this. Okay, now we'll have a playing test at the end of the weekend. In <laughs> fact, when Justin does this audition thing in in the in the uh, documentary. Clark is just laid back on, man, just do your best. Just do what you do. Yeah, on any given right. day, if you do what you do and you do it the best you know how to do it, that's going to resonate through, which almost in some regard goes against the, the grain of, of traditional academia, even yeah. though it, it hits almost harder. Right, you know? sure. 
Well, I think with academics, we had to, you know, out of necessity, sort of create a curriculum and all those sure. things that are important right. to make that happen. But I think there's something to be said about, well, how did Clark Terry learn how to play? Right. You know, there's this great story about Donald Byrd teaching at North Texas, and he'd say, okay, today we're going to learn Donna Lee. And then he'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd come back the next day and say, okay, let's work on Donna Lee again. And he'd play a course for them, and, uh, and then he'd leave. Right. And the students finally went to the, the head of the department and said, hey, he just comes in and has us play. Now they called Donald Byrd in. Said, what are you doing? He goes, that's how I learned how to play. We just <laughs> kept playing these tunes until we got them, and they ain't got it yet. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. So I think learning from the masters and the way that they did it is, is uh, also good, in addition to whatever kind of new technologies come along to help you learn. Sure, sure. And so you switch gears to the sort of the performance end of this, and obviously being the artistic director of the Columbus Jazz Orchestra, you're thinking about, I can only imagine, you're thinking about how do I take this orchestra, one of the best in the world, that's that's constantly trying to push forward and harness the majesty of this this music that that is the cornerstone and push it into the future. And so talk to us a little bit about the band. So you've been doing this, this is your 14th season. Um, you know, what is it like to put the band together at the beginning of a season as you're thinking of how the season's going to unfold? What kind of goals do you have? What do you want people to feel when they walk away from a CJO show? And just kind of give us the feeling that you're trying to convey as you kick the season off with the mm -hmm. band. Well, I mean, one of the things I always have thought is important is that um, you can teach or help people learn best when they don't know that they're, right? right? It's like they just like, well, geez, I like that. So there's a couple things that I sort of conceptualize when I put together a season and or a show. First of all, I, I, I see a show as a piece of music, so it should have it, its ups and its downs, and the audience should feel those emotions throughout the show. Hopefully they'll feel that at this uh, Redefining Traditions show. Um, I think the most important element um, of what we do, and that's why I try to integrate it as much as possible as new compositions, and that's why we do the Clark Terry Suite. To me, that's the most important part, the most important piece of this, rather than, and that's why we put redefining, because we want to take the influence of Ellington and Basie and all the other big band leaders, uh, including Maria Schneider, who we've worked with and who was very important to us. That's the reason we brought Maria here, because I want everybody to know that jazz is living and it's breathing. Right. It's, it's, it's here and it's now, and I, I rather than see a museum piece, and that's why we don't. I don't necessarily demand that guys play or the solo that Cootie Williams played or this guy played. If they want to have little sections of it or whatever, I don't object to that. But I really want you to do your own thing, which is what all my band leaders did that I worked with. Uh, when I played in Arville Shaw's band, Arville Shaw was Louis Armstrong's bass player for probably 20 years. And uh, he had a band he called the Louis Armstrong Legacy Band. And he pulled me aside and said, now, do your thing. Mm. I'm like, really? Yeah, but I mean, you know, kind of stick to the tradition, but you know, I want you to like bebopping the whole time, but I want to hear your thing. Right. You know? Right. Um, I know that Basie would tell people that. I know that Ellington would do that too. Woody Herman certainly did it when I was with his bands. So that's the important piece of people feeling the living, breathing part of this. The goal when, I, when people leave is a, is a couple things. It, that number one, that. If the music is powerful enough, people will leave the theater almost changed. Mm -hmm. That there will be almost, a, for lack of a better word, a spiritual feeling that they get from hearing the music. And it's like it just feels good. And, you know, someone um, once asked, you know, what is jazz? They asked Fats Waller. And he said, if you have to ask, you'll never know. Right. And so 
I don't know that people will be able to, it's not something that they can hold. They'll just know that feels good and I'm coming back. And I, and I do have that as a money back guarantee. <laughs> right, if, if, right. if you if you come, I, I you'll come back. I, I, and you won't ask for your money back if you come. You're going to have a great experience there. And that's my job as an artistic director. The second thing is that learning piece. I think that um, when you listen to Stravinsky, um, it's tough the first time. Right. It's it's like, what's all that? And there's this dis- uh, dissonance. And it's uh, there's these time meters that I'm not used to. But if you're uh, a practice listener, you're like, oh, I get that, but it might take you a second. Right. So what I can do is I'm not going to just shove spinach down your throat. You'll always do like Count Basie said. You'll pat your foot. But I can throw a whole bunch of other things in there that will make it different. So even, and this is the final thing I'll say about that, even when we play pop music, so we'll, we'll do James Taylor well, this season we're going to do a little bit of Sting and a little bit of Steely Dan type things. We'll have all new new arrangements on those, and I will demand that the composers put in improvisation. So it's not a cover band, sure. More than it's like, hey, you know, it's like we did Elton John a few years back. It's like if these tunes are good, they're good for jazz too. And right. one of the traditions of jazz musicians have always taken good music and they've always played it. It could be pop songs, and back in the day. Uh, the great pop songs were I Can't Give You Anything But Love, I'm Confessing That I Love You. These are all songs that like Louis Armstrong recorded. And by the way, he was criticized when he did it because people said, oh, you're stepping away from the New Orleans you're selling tradition. selling out. Right. right. <laughs> you're selling out because those aren't New Orleans tunes. Right. You're playing those pop tunes. Right. Right. So we still have a fight against that today. The essence is if we play it with the honesty of jazz and I think especially the improvisation, then we're, we're true to jazz. Jazz will always move forward. I mean, Dizzy Gillespie used the influence of night in Tunisia and brought in these Latin right. rhythms that he heard. Stan Getz did the same thing. Um, Chick Corea and so many others have been instrumental in, in putting fusion elements and rock elements into music, and Chick puts everything in his music. I want to continue that tradition and not sort of have my attitude about jazz uh, be in cement. Um, I, I, I really like the flexibility that jazz offers me. One of the things that, that that when I first came to Columbus as a student surprised me more than anything is not, o- not just that there were good musicians in Columbus, but you had not only musicians but personalities and playing styles that you could write a composition or a feature around. When I first saw the Columbus Jazz Orchestra, I wasn't the, – the, the amazing ensemble sections – were not really the thing that kind of popped to me as much as, man, who's this Bobby Floyd guy? Who's Michael Cox stepping up there and tearing it up? Tell me, when you first came to Columbus, first of all, was that something that you had, you were expecting when you first started working with the band, that there would be that many people that not only would be strong in their section, but that you could really create some energy and some unique um, um, compositions and arrangements around the players, and then looking ahead, with this band that you've got, what are you most excited about with this band looking into the future that you want people to know, you know, that the CJO is, is forging forward? Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, I must say, when I saw this uh, date on my calendar to come back here over 20-some years ago, um, it was just like an afterthought, like a lot of your gigs. Are. I was like, okay, I'll come here. and then. But it was interesting, it was the, the surprise, because I was expecting, like, cows and straw in the streets right, and right. a lot of you know unpaved roads and stuff <laughs> you know because i hadn't yet been I, you know what we used to come to columbus uh with the count basie band and i remember we stayed at the holiday inn by the bus station so right. all, all you uh 
Columbus guys because uh, we used to go over there and get uh, out the vending machines late. <laughs> you know, that was where we got our after uh, gig snacks. So I was familiar. We I think we played in some a couple gigs in a hotel somewhere. Um, mm. I don't know if it was the Southern or what the the Western, but. Um, now I forgot your question. We're just talking about the guys in the band when you got the call to, so, to come here. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't expect anything that big. I got this call from Ray Eubanks, and do you want to do this gig? And all right, you know what? I put it in the calendar, and then mm-hmm. it's coming up. I was dreading coming here, but man, the first rehearsal, um, there was a guy named Hank Marr playing the piano, and I'm like, who is this? It was like swinging so hard, mm. you know. I was like, wow, and then the drummer was this guy, Bob Reithop. He came up to me and goes, hey, man, um, did you ever know this guy, Cozy Cole? I'm like, what is uh, Cozy Cole used to play Louis Armstrong. What would this guy know about Cozy Cole? <laughs> oh, he used to live here in Columbus. I'm like, wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. And uh, then I'm like surveying the band. I see this Michael Cox guy that you talked about. And I was like, wow, this cat can really play. Pretty unassuming character. Yeah, and then he steps up and like, there. boom. You know, there was a great lead player, Burdette Green. All right. He sounded amazing on lead, and, and uh, my second time coming here, I actually conducted the band to audition, or it might have been my third time, mm. and they played a, a, a Kenton thing that featured all the saxes, Opus something, mm-hmm. I forgot what it's called. Burdette was tearing that up. He really knew it. There was this guy, Ola Hansen, playing. He said, oh, well, he used to play with Kai Wending, and they had a group together. I'm right, like, what? Right. He stood up to take a solo. He bebopped his way through some blues. I'm like, Wow. You know, it just Pat Lewis was anchoring down the the bass trombone thing. The lead trumpet player Wes Orr, it's like, man, this cat was nails. He was ready for it. Jim Powell was playing trumpet. It right. was just all through the band. There were like these little stars that kept shining out and popping out. And so when I got offered to 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 the the position, I was like, man, we we have so much potential right. here. We can make this grow into something. Continue to make it grow because it was already an amazing product through Ray Eubanks right. and one of the first of its types. If right. before, I remember I used to play as a Lincoln Center band, and I saw Ray Eubanks there at one of the concerts, and he, uh, I just played the Columbus Jazz Orchestra, and they were just starting the Lincoln Center. Band. <laughs> I saw Ray Eubanks. I said, "What are you doing here?" He goes. I'm just checking it out. I said, we've been doing this already for, you know, like, <laughs> wow, you know. So it's cool. Look, tra- right. Columbus was a trailblazer in this. Right. The future for this is, you know, and and I'd love to tell you about this simulcast we're going to do because that sort of com- gets into the future is we have some great raving fans here and then wherever we go, whether it's Vail, Colorado, or we'll be traveling to Cleveland later to play for the, the Tri-Cities Jazz Festival in Cleveland, a uh, number of other places that we travel, people always are affected by the music. Here's my goal, especially with the simulcast, because now we have a chance to do that. We have the chance to have the world get the feelings and hear what we do and to understand why people are so excited about this organization. That'll happen through the simulcast, but it'll happen as we begin to go out and play. But the simulcast is, is really the trigger right. that's going to let everybody sort of see hey, we're here to stay, and we're creating beautiful music with people in Columbus, Ohio. Well, we can't wait to see what happens this weekend with the show and then on through the, the entire season. Thank you for taking the time out to uh, spend with us to talk about this show, and best of luck to you as you get started. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Jazz Scene. We want to hear your feedback. Visit our podcast website, jazzarchgroup.org slash scene, and leave us your comments, questions, or suggestions. 
A big thank you to the Fort Hayes Career Center and Ryan Van Bibber for lending us our talented audio engineer, Jesus Hernandez. Our theme music is by Michael Cox. Our producer is Vanessa Gabriel. And funding for this podcast is provided by the Jazz Arch Group of Columbus. I'm Zach Constant, and we hope you catch our next episode of The Jazz Scene.